Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is Primetime Politics, the Vote 2019 edition, day 29 of the campaign, 12 more days to voting day in this country. And the campaign narratives for the final push are sharpening around the choices you'll have to make. Today, the focus on uh, border crossings and asylum seekers, tax cuts, and also uh, blackface is back in the campaign news today, and we'll have more on that. We'll be talking about infrastructure and crumbling cities. And the first results on election night will come in from Newfoundland and Labrador. Tonight, we'll profile two riding battles there that could tell us what to watch for. But first, the Day 29 campaign primer. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer campaigned in Quebec along the border with New York State. Over the past two years, some 50,000 people have benefited from a loophole in the Safe Third Country Agreement with the United States to enter Canada outside of regular border crossings where they claim asylum in this country. Andrew Scheer says a Conservative government will try to reach an agreement with the U.S. to close the loophole and stop the asylum flow but he's prepared to act alone. Our preferred course of options to do this is to resolve this in partnership so that both countries can uh, ensure that, uh, that uh, personal security, that uh, the health and well-being of people coming through uh, is resolved. But uh, as I said, there are other options, there are other tools available to the government that, uh, that we'll also be exploring. Scheer is also promising to move immigration judges to the irregular border crossing points to speed up processing hiring an additional 250 border guards, and he's also promising to set immigration targets each year and focus more on economic immigration. The Liberal leader, Justin Trudeau, campaigned in Markham, Ontario today, where he highlighted his promised tax cuts for middle-class families and said another $600 cut would be the first order of business for a re-elected Liberal government. And in a familiar message aimed at providing stark choices for progressive voters, Trudeau repeatedly linked unpopular Premier Doug Ford with Andrew Scheer. People here in Ontario are seeing what happens when politicians promise to be for the people and then cut the services they rely on. Larger classes for your kids, less support for your communities. That's the real cost of buck a beer. And now, Andrew Scheer wants Canadians to double down on Conservative politicians like Doug Ford. And in response to Scheer's pledge to crack down on asylum seekers, Trudeau denied they are using shortcuts to game the system. There are no, uh, are no uh, skipping steps within our immigration system. Everyone arriving in Canada goes through the same immigration system, a full rigorous immigration system that is being applied. No doubt lifted by rising personal popularity, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh led a union convention in Montreal today in dance. Singh promised an NDP government would close tax loopholes and offshore tax havens to put $25 billion into social services for Canadians. This is a choice that Mr. Trudeau and the Liberal government and previous Conservative governments have made. They have chosen to give the rich and powerful these loopholes. You know the powerful thing about choice? If they chose to let the richest off the hook, then we can choose to make sure they pay their fair share. 
Singh is working hard to counter Justin Trudeau's open call to progressive voters to rally behind the Liberals to block a possible Conservative government. I believe that if you want something big, if you want big changes, you want universal pharmacare, you got to take a chance on something you believe in. And to do that means taking a chance and having the courage to do so and vote for what you believe in. Vote for what your heart tells you. And I believe if people did that, not only would we have new Democrats elected, we could form government in this country. It was a slightly less busy day on the campaign trail today as the leaders shift their focus to the last televised leaders' debate of the campaign. It's Thursday night in French. And the blackface controversy involving Justin Trudeau has resurfaced today in the campaign. Toronto Liberal candidate and longtime member of Parliament Judy Scro is apologizing for suggesting in a radio interview that members of the black community in her riding are essentially flattered that Justin Trudeau dressed up in blackface and brownface on three occasions. Here's what she said, and we'll hear a reaction from NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. But let me tell you that in, in, in knocking on doors and being in the plazas and talking to people to make sure that I'm as sensitive as I need to be mm -hmm. if I've missed something. And those in the black community have told me that how much more love they have mm -hmm. for the prime minister. That he wanted to have a black, but he took great pride in that too. And that it's the, it's the media that have blown this into something that it shouldn't be. It is ludicrous for Ms. Segro to suggest that. It is, it is embarrassing and it is shameful that she would suggest that people like Mr. Trudeau more because he did blackface. That shows a massive disconnect between the Liberal Party and in fact Mr. Trudeau and what real people are living and what they're experiencing. It is shameful that she said something like that. All right, lots to uh, discuss on the campaign trail today with our par panel of party commentators uh, to discuss this issue and others. Anne McGrath is an NDP commentator. Ashton Arsenault is a conservative commentator. And Jeff Turner is a liberal commentator. Good to see you all. Uh, and we heard from your leader. Let me, let me have you follow up on this. Um, I mean, Jagmeet Singh put it that way, said what he had to say. But uh, what do you make of this? Well, I mean, it's horrible what she said. You know, I, I, you cringe when you hear it. And it's, uh, I, I agree with Jagmeet Singh. It's a terrible thing that she said. Uh, she should immediately apologize. Which she has done. Um, and, uh, you know, I think she should acknowledge how hurtful those, com those comments are. Uh, I think that uh, Mr. Singh's reaction to it was completely accurate. And, uh, and I would be willing to bet that uh, Mr. Trudeau and the Liberal headquarters are probably pretty mad about this. Uh, Jeff, let me ask you, this is, I'm, I think Justin Trudeau probably thought this was behind him now. He's said uh, he's apologized for uh, the incidents that he was involved with wearing brown face or, uh, brown face or black face. And, um, and I guess what struck me was different. This, this is a longtime member of caucus who's, who's got to be aware of what reactions have already been from other caucus members who've said that this was hurtful and disappointing, uh, racialized caucus members who, who said this, this didn't work, and Justin Trudeau's apologized. I mean, is this a firing offense for this candidate? I think it's unquestionably a stupid thing that she said and showed a lot of lack of judgment in that moment of saying that. Uh, and I think she quite appropriately and quite quickly apologized and retracted the statement. So that's the important thing right there is that it was caught and it was apologized for and retracted. 
I think, uh, I don't think the anecdote itself is made up. I think she probably had that conversation with one or two people at the doors or in a community center, as she referenced. But I think the lack of judgment was not seeing that anecdote as a way of spinning the issue. And that was absolutely not the right approach. The party line, the prime minister's line, the caucus's line, to your point, is quite uh, well grounded in this was wrong, this was hurtful, and apologize profusely and at every opportunity for those that it hurt, and that's what needed to be done here. Ashton, what do you think? Yeah, the number of mental somersaults that one has to make to deduce that the Prime Minister only appeared in blackface on no fewer than three occasions, only did so because he wanted to endear himself or become closer with the black community truly is mind-boggling. I, I know that we have a quick apology from the Liberal campaign and Judy Stroh herself, which I'm sure was aided by a very upset Liberal war room. Uh, because as you had rightfully pointed out, Peter, they had hoped that this is behind them and now it's right back on the front page. But uh, truly to make a mistake this late for somebody that season, mind-boggling. Okay. Well, I mean, she was rationalizing unacceptable behavior. Correct. Yeah, and it's it's and, I'm, and I can't put myself in in her mind, right? But it's an it's an interesting to your point how you get from the if those conversations happened on the doorstep to what would make you say that that, on, that it's yeah. that it's uh, yeah it's it's okay then uh, people liked it. Not in, a single fact, issue of good could come from it. Let, let me let me switch to uh, the border announced from from Andrew Shear today, talking about look, he wants to reopen. Uh, the safe third country agreement with the United States, which so far the Liberal government is trying to do too, to try and deal with this issue at the border of asylum seekers coming across the border at places other than official border crossings. But Andrew Scheer also said today, look, I'm going to try and renegotiate this with the U.S., and if it doesn't work, I have other options. Presumably, he means he's going to declare the whole border uh, an official border crossing, which means, you know, uh, uh, no matter where they cross, they're turned around and sent home. How's that going to work? Yeah, so the announcement today was actually a little bit more robust than that. So there's additional support announced for uh, Canadian Border Services agents. Uh, there's additional supports announced for enhanced language training. But to your point on the safe third party arrangement, I think the Prime Minister, or sorry, the Prime Minister in waiting, we'll call him Andrew hey, Scheer. Careful now, not yet. <laughs> Uh, has rightfully pointed out that there is a bit of a crisis of confidence currently in Canada's immigration system. And the, the fact of the matter is that's because there are individuals who are getting in front of people who are doing it through legitimate means, as it has always been done in Canada. Canada is a country of immigration. We always have been, and we hopefully always will be. But to say right now that we cannot do better by negotiating a better arrangement with the United States... But what has he got in, what has he got in mind if the U.S. says doesn't want to move like Donald Trump's got his hands sure. full trying to work on safe third country agreements sure. with Guatemala and other countries trying to deal with the southern border is he talk how do you police the Canadian border if you're trying to just turn these people around and send them back so, uh, look, Peter, I think there was a couple of options stated by Andrew Scheer today, but first and foremost, let's not discount what a refreshed relationship with the United States could possibly look like between President Donald Trump and Andrew Scheer. We all know that President Trump and uh, the current Prime Minister Justin Trudeau haven't always gotten along, and we know that President Trump is uh, not uh, entirely unlikely to make a couple of flippant one-off comments, regardless of who the leader is. But I think with a refreshed relationship and a new government, some actual serious discussion and negotiation can be done there. And what's wrong with this plan? So for one thing, uh, I think that most Canadians, including many Conservatives, are not comfortable with Donald Trump as the president and are watching what's happening with the immigration and refugee issues in the United States with horror. Um, you know, children being ripped from their parents' arms, detention camps, uh, filthy conditions. I think that, that, that it is a horrible situation. And I think that having, uh, like, th this announcement today uh, unfortunately, I think ties us too closely to that relationship with the United States that so many Canadians find really, uh, you know, horrific. Jeff? 
First, I'd like to just point out that there's this continuing sort of misinformation about the different systems between the sort of normal immigration system and the asylum seekers who are protected under human rights conventions. Right. The, 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 liber the liberals crowded. on this, no one's jumping the queue. There's, the, the, there's a system to deal with this and a system to deal with people who come in. And I think there's a political pitch in the Conservatives to new Canadian communities who are concerned about family reunification, immigration, economic immigration, that somehow those people are being replaced by asylum seekers. And that's just simply not true. So I just think it's important to really flesh out that when they talk about these illegal border crossers and taking up all the energy and keeping uh, you know the sort of legitimate immigrants but out, it is tying up true. millions of dollars in resources that could be used to yeah, speed up is, the, but it isn't the changing the fundamentals the of the system. The conservative plan is to reprioritize the aforementioned items that you mentioned family reunification economic immigration because they're trying to talk out of both sides of their mouth to those different communities and I think what's happening here uh, in the conservative sense is I'm you know this is an attack they took a year ago when Maxime Bernier first affected they went hard on the immigration issues I'm wondering what their internal polling is showing on that I'm wondering that Andrew Scheer didn't rule out detention camps at the border. That's a very scary thing to Anne's exact points about what's happening out of right-wing politics in the United States. And the final point I make is every expert today who knows anything about the Canadian law and our relationship with the United States has said this is dead on arrival and will not work. It is okay, not feasible gonna, to get that plan we, off the ground. We, we are gonna hear, we're going to hear from an expert coming up in It a few does minutes. make you wonder, though, if they're uh, worried about their base uh, after having Maxime Bernier on the debate stage the other night, whether or not there are concerns about trying to re-solidify or consolidate their base, because it was a pretty right-wing announcement. Let's talk about messaging in the last uh, three or four minutes we have here. Uh, I think we're really starting to see messages focus uh, around the campaign. And Jeff, let me start with you and, and the Liberal leader is now uh, on a daily basis at every stop linking Andrew Scheer and Doug Ford and really trying to focus Canadians uh, on the choice issue. Uh, and what's the purpose of that? I mean, my reading is, and I'll answer my own question to you, but my, my reading is this, is this is going hard on that last 10-day message about don't waste your vote on Jagmeet Singh or Elizabeth May. If you want to stop Andrew Scheer, it's got to be me. Let me get to the air war in the last bit of my answer. I think I'm going to start at more of the ground war level, at a local campaign sure. level. And I think uh, local campaign workers, in terms of a message, are trying to, uh, first of all, all campaigns are going to doors and, and places where they're going to find voters who might vote for them. They're not necessarily going to people who won't vote for them. And I think when they're talking to those folks, they're saying, look, have a hard look at our program versus the other programs, especially the people who are considering a defection, effectively, to the green of the NDP vote. The second thing they're saying is, we need your vote to win. Uh, and that lies in, then moves up into the air war, which is where the prime minister and liberals across the country are reminding folks that the alternative government is an Andrew Scheer conservative government. That is the alternative government. And so nothing ultimately motivates progressive voters more than seeing uh, that as a very real outcome. And so the prime minister and liberals across the country will absolutely highlight for them that Jagmeet Singh will not be prime minister at the end of this. Elizabeth May will not be prime minister of this. Justin Trudeau will be or Andrew Scheer will be. Make a choice. And how does, how does Jagmeet Singh counter that message? He, so, he, he's trying to do it by saying, look, make a bold choice, like really vote for what you want and, and don't worry about what Parliament looks like after the day. But at the same time, he's, he's going around saying, I'll never support Andrew Scheer in a minority government, acknowledging as I listen to him that he's not going to be Prime Minister and isn't running for Prime Minister. So how does that help the message if he's saying he's already making decisions about who he will or won't support in a minority Parliament? So it's, it's almost like you could count down uh, and know always at what point in the campaign will the Liberals start with that uh, strategic voting message, right? Uh, I mean, you know, we saw Paul Martin do it in uh, 2004. It was like, you know, going to at least 12 ridings that had been NDP or were, uh, you know, leaning towards the NDP. 
and talking about how we share the same wellspring of values. And uh, that was successful. I think we're getting smarter at how to deal with that. And I think in this campaign, I think the Liberals are right to be worried about the support for Jagmeet Singh. He's done very well in this campaign. His support is picking up. And many progressive voters who left the NDP and voted for the Liberals last time because they had hope for a progressive government are disappointed and disillusioned. And they they, they are at risk of those voters moving back to the NDP, particularly with uh, uh, Jagmeet Singh right, running the, such a good the, campaign. The, the, the overriding message I think you hear from Jagmeet Singh these days when asked about this kind of issue is, yeah, I think Andrew Scheer is really bad too. I'll never do, I'll never support him in Parliament. It almost sounds like he's reinforcing the Trudeau message that we got to do everything we can to stop this guy from becoming prime minister. Well, he is, and I mean that's not dissimilar from what Jack Layton did very successfully. He said, "Yes, we do have to stop Stephen Harper, but you don't have to uh, choose between, as uh, as he said on the debate stage, uh, Mr. Deny or Mr. Delay. That you can actually make a choice for the kind of government and the kind of leader that you want. And I think his kind of authenticity and his strength of character is very appealing to progressive voters, and uh, they're starting to pay attention. Ashton, uh, where, where does Andrew? seeing go to find the extra four or five percent that he might need to form government and if you look at the polls he's, he's got to find voters somewhere where does he find them yeah I agree with both actually Anne and Jeff on this point first and foremost the last 10 days is all about contrast they are saying this we are saying this we're gonna present our vision in a positive light and contrast it as violently as we can with parties that we're trying to beat but also any campaigner will tell you these these last days most importantly we're gonna identify our vote and we're gonna make sure they go out to vote it's as simple as that. Is it more? Is it more that for conservatives about getting out the vote you already have than trying to see if you can find a two or three percentage more support somewhere else? No, not at all. Because I think parties like the NDP and the Liberals are actually bleeding support. Let me give you an anecdote here. But they're not. Do you think those voters are going to the Conservatives? For the Liberals, absolutely. Yeah. I'll give you an anecdote here. When's the last time you've seen a sitting Canadian Prime Minister with a majority in a Callowit or a safe Markham seat? within two weeks out from a federal election. Okay, well, to me, that says that there's a problem on the home front, and I think their nightly uh, polls are telling them that there's a problem. Let's see where everybody goes in the next 10 days. That's part of the secret to figuring out what's happening in the campaign. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Well, let's drill down now on the pledge today from Conservative leader Andrew Scheer to shut down the flow of asylum seekers at unofficial border crossings in this country with the United States. Uh, Jamie Liu is an associate law professor at the University of Ottawa. She joins me now. Professor Liu, uh, thanks for joining me today. It's good to see you. Thanks for having me. Maybe best to break down Andrew Scheer's proposal today into, into two parts, the border and his pro broader proposals on immigration. So if I can, let me start with the border. He's saying he'll shut down the flow of asylum seekers by renegotiating the safe third country agreement with the U.S., but if those negotiations uh, don't work, and so far they don't seem to be going all that quickly, he'll act unilaterally to stop the flow. What could he do? Well, I think that's a disingenuous promise to make. We have an extremely long border. Um, it is really hard to manage or to watch every inch of that border, and so I'm really not quite sure how he uh, plans on, on doing that. Um, in terms of renegotiation, renegotiating the Safe Third Country Agreement, I'm not sure what, what there is to renegotiate. There are, it's designed originally to prevent people from making a claim at the border, but really what it's doing is redirecting people to cross outside the official ports of entry. If we're talking about you know, managing an efficient and um, orderly border crossing for people, um, I'm curious to know why the Conservative government doesn't want to just get rid of the Safe Third Country Agreement and direct people to um, the crossings that we have. We already have 
the institutional, we already have the buildings, we already have the systems in place. And these are considered some mm. of the gold standard in terms of the systems and processes we have in place. So I'm really curious as to why the Conservatives do not want to just direct people back to where they are supposed to cross at the border. Right, right. Um, but I guess, I guess the thinking is, I mean, uh, I'm assuming that what he's got in mind is, and he didn't go into great detail today, but we've heard other Conservatives talk about it before, is just say, look, we're going to designate uh, the whole border, as you've talked about, the, 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 the kilometers long, wide open border in many places, as an official border crossing. In other words, no matter where you have crossed into Canada, we consider the U.S. a safe third country, you'll be turned around and sent back. So, uh, I mean, you're, you're saying that's unworkable. Well, practically speaking, how, first of all, will um, people know that they've crossed at the land border? Uh, when you cross at an unofficial port of entry, there isn't a border guard there. There isn't the infrastructure there to greet people, to process people. So it's unclear to me how he will identify who are those people that are crossing at our U.S.-Canada land border. And secondly, even if there was a way to identify those people, um, you're going to, they're already in Canada. Process them accordingly. Um, give them the opportunity to go through the systems that we have in place. It is unclear to me how he would turn those people back. There isn't the infrastructure all across the border that would uh, make this a reality in terms of turning people back right away. So it seems disingenuous to me to say that the entire border would be made a safe third country agreement zone and that we would immediately turn people back. That doesn't seem realistic or practical. So, so what, would, what would lifting um, the safe third country agreement do? That's the, that's the suggestion or suspending it. That's the suggestion today from Jugmeet Singh. Just suspend the safe third, third country agreement. What would that do? What that would do is that it would send people the message that they could come to our official ports of entry, our official border crossings, and you know, make themselves known to officials, apply for asylum, Everybody gets through the system, and it doesn't mean that when you apply for asylum, you will get asylum or refugee protection. Process these people. If they are deserving protection, give it to them. If not, then there's a process in place to have persons removed from Canada. Um, in my mind, this speaks to a more efficient and orderly way to manage the border. It would mean that people would not be going to makeshift border crossings like Roxham Road. Um, and it would divert resources away from managing uh, unofficial border crossings to doing what we already have in place, an efficient and well-run system at our border, right. official so, border crossing. I, I guess the argument on the other side, right, is right now if you, if you show up at a, at a regular border crossing, given the safe third country agreement, and you come to a safe, uh, to a, a regular border crossing and, and want to claim asylum, you're turned around right away, aren't you? That's right. So if you get rid of the safe third country agreement, though, the problem with uh, whether or not you are eligible to make a refugee claim would be taken away because it would mean that just because you crossed out of Canada, U.S. official port of entry doesn't make you um, ineligible to make a claim. So once you take that barrier away, people will be more likely to come to our official ports of entry and make a claim for, for refugee protection. This has been done in the past. You know, in the beginning, when the Safe Third Country Agreement came about, um, it was one that really only benefited Canada in the sense that we were responding to um, calls by the United States, our security measures after 9-11. Um, and during that time, there were calls already being made about the issues of how do we manage when people try to um, circumvent um, official ports of entry. So we've known for many, many years that this was an issue. We've known for many years that this 
policy, this agreement has not decreased the number of refugee claims being made in Canada, which is why it was brought in the first place to deal with backlogs happening at the Immigration Refugee Board. People are going to come. We are seeing that now. Let's make sure that we manage uh, the processing of people at the border in a humane way and in a way that's efficient and orderly, which is what I think every government should be striving to do. Okay, let's finish on this. On the immigration side, he's, Mr. Shear's promising to prioritize those who go through the family reunification program. How, how significant is that? I think it's a, I'm cautiously optimistic about this call. I mean, the previous uh, government, the Liberal government had, um, you know, a, a serious mandate letter related to this. But, you know, there are very little details with regards to what is promised. I will be curious to see whether uh, the Conservative Party would be interested in either eliminating or increasing the cap in the number of applications that people can make in, for example, sponsoring their parents and grandparents, interested in seeing how the processing, there's been long wait times and long processing times with sponsorship applications. And finally, there is this um, regulation that allows the government to impose a lifetime ban on people to sponsor family members that were not originally declared or examined when people were originally immigrating. And I think this is a problematic provision that many advocates have called for its repeal. I would be interested to see if the Conservatives would entertain repealing it altogether. All right, Professor Jamie Liu, uh, thanks for your perspective tonight. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, the federal party leaders have been making infrastructure promises during this campaign. The conservative leader says he'll give priority to projects that cut commute times. The liberal leaders accused some premiers of delaying infrastructure projects eligible for federal funding. And a new report from the Federation of Canadian Municipalities underscores the urgent need for new investments in aging infrastructure from roads to bridges to libraries and arenas. Bill Karsten is the president of the FCM and joins me from Halifax, where he's a municipal councillor. Uh, Mr. Carson, good to see you. Thanks for being with me. Thank you very much, uh, Peter, for the opportunity to speak to you. So, how, you're welcome. How, how, how bad is the state of infrastructure in communities across this country? Well, certainly the uh, infrastructure report card that was released by FCM and several other stakeholders earlier this week uh, it doesn't hold any surprises for us. It's something that we have known for some time, that in fact, uh, uh, you, you and your uh, viewers may know that the municipalities in Canada do in fact have an excess of 60% of the infrastructure in Canada, and yet we get very, very small fraction of Canada's tax dollar. So the infrastructure report card uh, shows things like 40% of uh, Canada's roads and bridges are in either poor or uh, very poor condition. It's something that, uh, as I say, doesn't come as a surprise to uh, to municipalities across Canada, but uh, certainly should be a wake-up call uh, for federal leaders. Municipalities already get $2 billion annually from the, the federal gas tax fund for infrastructure projects. So what more are you asking for? What more do you think cities need? Yeah, thank you again for, that, for pointing that out. Uh, Peter, number one, the gas tax transfer, I, I'm very quick to always point out, has no relationship to the actual sale of uh, gasoline products. It's a formula that uh, does uh, flow out of general revenue direct to municipalities. So uh, as you may recall, and your viewers uh, uh, may know that in the March 2019 budget, uh, the federal government uh, did uh, double that gas tax transfer for this year. And our message is just very simply this, 
that if it's good for this year, it's good for next year and the year after and the year after. Why do we say that? Simply that uh, it is a great funding mechanism. It's a great tool that we use uh, to build infrastructure in our communities. And yet every year there is so much infrastructure that doesn't get funded uh, from the gas tax transfer. So what we're calling for in this election is simply to have the gas tax transfer doubled on a permanent basis. And as I say, simply, uh, if it makes sense this year, it makes sense for future years as well. All right. The, the Liberal platform actually spells out concerns that some premiers are playing political games with infrastructure projects, delaying project approvals. Has your organization seen that? Or do you have a beef with provinces, too, that aren't delivering these projects more uh, uh, quickly enough? Uh, many of these projects obviously benefit municipalities. Yeah, the beautiful part about uh, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities and working with the federal government, obviously we have direct access to them and uh, uh, we do believe that our message is resonating. Why do I point that out is that uh, when you're dealing with provinces and territories, you're going to get obviously a diversity and a mix of uh, different opinions and uh, different formats and different ways of doing business. And we are just simply saying Peter, that uh, regardless of what the programs are, municipalities need, number one, a seat at the table, and number two, in all decisions the federal government uh, makes in the future, and number two, what we need is more direct, and watch these words, yeah. direct and predictable funding from our federal partners. Right. I want to ask you about that, but I'm, I'm also asking, I mean, are you, have have your members personally seen projects delayed because provinces are playing political games with it? Pro, you know, projects that would benefit your communities. So again, uh, you know, the the fact that there is such diversity, uh, yes, uh, to answer your que uh, question directly, but I qualify it by saying that it it always does flow at different uh, speeds and different levels depending on which province or territory we're talking about. So some do have a tendency to be able to get the funds out the door for municipal products or projects quicker than others. And there is a delay with some provinces in this country currently. All right. And, so, the, and the case you would make, the case you would make, I think, is that, look, uh, why do we need to be involved in that at all? Just, you know, provide funding directly to municipalities uh, by, by ensuring this uh, money from, and I guess notwithstanding your uh, your characterization of it, the gas tax fund, and make sure that stays doubled and permanent, and just make sure you deal directly with the municipalities and bypass the provinces. Is that what you're saying? Well, it certainly uh, sounds good to me. Thank you for framing it that way. I mean, uh, local leaders are on the front lines of everything we do, uh, even uh, with climate change, not to go off subject, but uh, to give another example. And uh, absolutely, we're on the front lines. We're the order of government that uh, Canadians do, in fact, uh, uh, have great respect and, in fact, do still trust based on recent polling through Abacus. And uh, my message would simply be this to all party leaders, and I have passed that message on to each and every one of them, that uh, municipalities uh, uh, are building communities and building better lives for Canadians and subsequently direct predictable funding is the way that we need to move in the future. All right, uh, Bill Carston, uh, you've made the message here, and uh, and and party leaders will uh, will get it certainly. And uh, thanks for your time today, uh, Peter. Thank you very much uh, for the opportunity to share that uh, very important message with with your listeners today. Thank you. Well, let's shift our attention now to the election battle in Newfoundland and Labrador. 
On election night, the results from that province will roll out first, and we may get the first indication of how the night will unfold. CPAC reporters are on the ground in some 50 ridings across the country that we think will tell the story of who wins and why on election night through the issues that matter most to voters. And two of those ridings in Newfoundland and Labrador are two of our ridings to watch. These two ridings make up Newfoundland's urban core, and their incumbent Liberal MPs are both facing spirited challenges. St. John's East is home to some of the higher incomes of these two ridings, and to some of the city's most picturesque scenes. Here, the political story is of the big hopes for the NDP. This is one of the few ridings in all of Canada where the New Democrats are hoping to gain a seat. Hi, I'm Jack Harris. Hi. I'm running in St. John's East for the NDP, looking for your support. Do you live in St. John's East? I think you are. I do. Oh, yeah, where are you? Where do you live? Just on Mary Meeting. Oh, I think yeah. you came to my house before. I think so, yeah. Okay. Well, I hope I can come under support. What do you think? I'll have to see. You're not, you're not decided yet, are you? <laughs> okay, that's good. St. John's lawyer Jack Harris is the main challenger in St. John's East. He was a Ridings MP for two terms until the Trudeau wave swept the province. He only lost by just over 600 votes in 2015 and he figures his chances of winning the riding back are good. I was being uh, asked by many, many people during the last two years whether I would run again, am I running again, urging me to run again. So it was pretty clear that people were not uh, too happy with the situation that they were in. We have seven Liberal MPs from Newfoundland and Labrador in Ottawa with the Liberal government. No other voices, no, op no opposition. Morning guys, how's it going? Nick Whalen. Andy Fitzgerald. Hey Andy. We know your father. Okay, what's, what's your name? <laughs> still know your father. We still know okay, your father. Nick Whalen. Okay. So what are you guys talking politics this morning? You're here to see the debate? Or? Oh God. <laughs> The Liberal incumbent is lawyer and engineer Nick Whalen, who's running on the Liberals' track record. It also doesn't hurt that the Trudeau government just recently announced billions of dollars in new transfer payments to Newfoundland. His take on the race in St. John's East? Well, it's a very much a local election. I mean, uh, the, the leaders right now, by and large, are running into some popularity issues of their own. There's been somewhat of a negative campaign on the national stage. I think it will be because uh, people looked at the hard work that I've done personally over the last four years. Uh, they've looked a little bit past party politics, and they said Nick Whalen has worked hard. Hey, Good morning. How you doing? Not too bad. How are you doing? Good. Jody Wild, pleased to meet you. Pleased to uh, meet you. You're, you're someone's friend today. I can tell you that. Jacob Hatcher. Yeah. No, oh, that's right next door. Oh, very good. Very good. Yeah. Yes. Definitely conservative. Ah, good. I'm pleased. We'll shake on that. Okay. Yeah. The man who could be the spoiler in St. John's East is the conservative candidate and mayor of nearby Pooch Cove, Jody Wall. Uh, my heart and soul is into helping people, and I've done so all my life. I've spent 25 years in healthcare. Uh, I work with mentally delayed and autistic adults, and I speak for those who can't speak for themselves. 
So this is, for me, it's a natural progression and uh, it's, it's one that I'm passionate about and I'm, I'm really excited uh, in this election, so uh, it's, that's why I'm on the Conservative team. Meanwhile, next door, the riding of St. John's South Mount Pearl is home to the province's Memorial University and to some slightly lower average incomes. How are things with you? You tell me. Woohoo! Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> it's that time. It is that time. Yeah. The incumbent Liberal is Seamus O'Regan. He is Justin Trudeau's Minister responsible for Newfoundland and Labrador and Minister of Indigenous Services. At this stage of the game as an incumbent, you either have a reputation for working hard and representing your constituents well, or you don't. Um, and I have consistently worked hard. Uh, and I think a lot of people recognize that. So there, you know, there will be some people who um, don't agree perhaps with the results of that hard work or that, or that dedication that I've shown to the riding. And there are those that will. Hi, I'm Terry. First time we saw you. Yes. Good to meet you. I'm Edie Shepherd. Hi, Edie. Nice to meet you. Rita Jensen. Rita Jensen. Rita Jensen. Jensen's from Harbour Britain. Well, my husband was originally from Harbour Britain. Yes. Because uh, my wife's family bought out Jensen's business. Okay. You know, they had the, the hardware in the grocery store. and Tom Jensen. Tom, yeah. We bought out Jensen's. In St. John's, South Mount Pearl, the Conservatives are pinning their hopes on first-time candidate Terry Martin. He's a fund director of the Canadian Heart of Hearing Association. The NDP candidate in St. John's, South Mount Pearl is longtime social advocate Anne-Marie Anonson. I'm fed up with listening to bad ideas coming out of Ottawa, especially under the past two back-and-forth political parties. Jagmeet Singh gives Canadians a really different way of looking at things. He really does care about the citizenry of this country. While St. John's East is the closer race, the hottest political controversy has fallen in the lap of Indigenous Services Minister Seamus O'Regan. The Trudeau government has announced it is appealing a ruling by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, which orders the government to pay compensation of up to $44,000 to more than 50,000 Indigenous children whom the tribunal found suffered discrimination when they were removed from their families and put into child welfare. But the Trudeau government is now challenging that ruling, and Indigenous groups and some opposition parties are furious. It's more than disappointing, it's astonishing, it flies totally in the face of, of, of you know, what we need to do to give back to, to Indigenous Canadians, uh, children and adults, their human rights. And they're, they're not doing it. And we have to get there. We've got the Conservative Party now and the Liberal Party both saying that they don't accept, essentially, they don't accept this human rights uh, tribunal's ruling that, the, that they were discriminating against these uh, ch children and that they have to compensate them. So how does the Indigenous Services Minister defend his government's decision to put on hold up to $2.5 billion in compensation for First Nations children? It isn't an issue of money. I mean, frankly, we agree with the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal on the mistreatment of, of Indigenous peoples um, through the child and family services regimes of the various provinces. We totally agree with that. Um, we also agree on the need for compensation. It's not the money that's the issue, it's, it's, it's basically the time. We were given this decision three days before the writ was dropped. Um, and everything that we've done uh, in, in terms of collaboration and uh, has been working with people, working with nations, working with Inuit and Métis from the ground up on finding solutions. We don't have enough time right now. We have to go back to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal according to this ruling on December 10th showing how we've implemented it. We can't do that by December 10th, not in the middle of a writ period. Critics say it's not about time because you could ask for an extension. 
Instead, you filed an, an appeal, which is challenging some of the major tenets of the of the of the ruling. No, we can't. And 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 besides that, we haven't even fully implemented one of the more seminal pieces of legislation I think that this country has ever passed, which is Bill C-92, which was co-developed with indigenous, indi national indigenous groups, and which basically takes child and family services and puts it back where it should have always belonged anyway, and that's with indigenous communities. We haven't even begun doing that yet. But if we take your appeal, your appeal is mentioned six points. The lawyers have drafted six points. They disagree with compensation. They disagree with the powers of the tribunal. They disagree with the finding of permanent discrimination or ongoing discrimination. You're taking issue with the whole ruling. You're challenging the whole raison d'etre of the ruling. You're no. saying that the, the tribunal got it wrong. I can tell you right now that we have no, we, we recognize discrimination, we recognize mistreatment, and we recognize the need for compensation. But, but your rate is actually, the, the, the ruling is, you're actually challenging it. You're challenging the authority. I mean, reading the six points, you're challenging the authority of the tribunal, you're challenging, challenging the finding of ongoing discrimination, you're challenging the use of compensation, you're challenging all of the tenets of the ruling. Well, we don't believe that a one-size-fits-all solution fits for every community, and we really want to work with communities from the ground up, and we understand the urgency of it. I've already said that, you know, were we to return to government, that this would be priority number one. Uh, we would sit down with groups immediately. And to indigenous groups of whom you are the minister, or one of the ministers, yeah. to Perry Bellegarde, to the Assembly First Nations, to the people who said, what the heck, you're telling us this is wrong. I spent a lot of time on the phone with them uh, before, you know, uh, on, on the day that we announced our appeal, and uh, with, the, with uh, the Assembly First Nations leadership, and with the national chief. We have a very good relationship. We have a very frank, open relationship, and one thing I really wanted to emphasize with, to them was that that doesn't change. Another big issue in St. John's and in all of Newfoundland and Labrador is skyrocketing hydro rates. They could as much as double in the next few years. It's all because of the Muskrat Falls hydroelectric project in Labrador. Once a dream mega project, it's turned into a nightmare. It's gone $5 billion over budget. The province has had to borrow more than $4 billion, and Ottawa has provided billions of dollars in loan guarantees. And now voters here want federal politicians to help reduce the coming rate increases. The Trudeau Liberals have promised help, but so far they haven't provided any details. Uh, we can't engage in these types of negotiations in public. You have to allow the experts to do their work, and you have to wait until we know what power is being sold for in international markets, know how much money is actually needed to help stabilize power rates in this province. Everyone has the same goal. We want our grandparents and our, our neighbors to be able to live comfortably and, and raise their families and retire with some dignity. And a doubling of power rates is gonna jeopardize that, so we're not gonna let it happen. It makes sense and it has to happen, but you know, they haven't committed to anything. Uh, they say that they're just gonna, a direct quote was, we're gonna look under the hood of this deal. And that's, there's nothing concrete. There, there's, there's a long way to go on that one, you know, and Andrew Scheer and our party's gonna do the same thing and we'll probably do it better. So what about that tight electoral race in St. John's East? With the NDP veteran Jack Harris campaigning hard to win right. the riding back, how vulnerable is the Liberal incumbent? Uh, Nick Whalen will have a challenge ahead of him. He is probably weakest on his left flank. He uh, took some heat in 2016 for saying that Indigenous people concerned about methylmercury poisoning downstream from Muskrat Falls and Labrador should eat less fish. Uh, and following that, I think the next year he got in a shouting match with some protesters at an anti-racism uh, vigil in Bannerman Park here in St. John's. And even last week at the climate rally, he was shouting and, and angrily defending the Liberals' record. Uh, and so having 
that be your kind of flank to defend and your challenger being from the NDP is, uh, is a tough thing for him to have to deal with. Hi, Jack Harris. How's it going? Very good. Just looking for support here for the election. You guys in St. John's East? I am. You are? I'm in West, but I'm in West. I ran against my sister once upon a time. Oh, who's that? The Nate Billard Pike. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sure you're going to do well. Well, thank you. I hope I can have your support. What's the biggest challenge for for Jack Harris as he tries to win the seat back? Probably keeping the Green Party at bay as they have. Uh, had a surge across Canada, less so here, but still they are growing. And if that chews into his vote, then it could it could come down to a few hundred votes. How are you, Jody Wall? Good. Nice to meet you. You as well. How's everything? Good, good. Watch yourself. You come down for your coffee yes, this morning? Wonderful. Yes. Ah, good to hear. Yep. So whereabouts do you live? Uh, Cayman Terrace. Oh, e- excellent. Well, we will, uh, we'll be in Cayman Terrace tomorrow. Yep. Yeah, Definitely. campaign door to door, good, uh, good uh, blitz tomorrow. Hopefully the weather's going to agree with us. So yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, and I look forward to uh, seeing you at my door. And so uh, I can't. Hey, appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah. We'll shake on that. Eh? Yeah. Thanks All a right. million. Much appreciated. Take, Good to see you. you too. Enjoy Bye. your coffee. Thank you. Thanks. Meanwhile, Tory candidate Jody Wall is hearing and talking a lot about the Liberal government's environmental legislation. We have we have Bill C69, which is a no pipeline bill. Uh, we have thousands of people in St John's East who rely on the oil and gas industry. To, for, for their families. Uh, while knocking on doors, I'm hearing on a regular basis. One gentleman not far from here uh, said that he has 60 days left of his savings. He hasn't worked uh, in the oil and gas field in, in almost two years. Um, and, that's, and that's hurting. And, and, and his family is hurting. So the, the for sale signs are going to go on his home in about two months because he will be, he'll have everything depleted. We have many workers uh, from Newfoundland and Labrador, not just St. John's East, but in the province, who, who travel. Uh, who are on turnarounds for uh, for their uh, for their jobs, and they rely on, uh, on on those positions to live here, and 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 they pay their taxes. So everything just everything is it snowballs. Uh, when 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 we have people move out, uh, the latest projection here in Newfoundland Labrador is over 1,300 people have have uh, have left the province. That's staggering. We can't we can't have that in, in in this day and age. People have anxiety. I wouldn't necessarily they have anger. I've spoken to many people, and when I explain what we've done, the common sense approach we've taken, and our desire, unlike the Greens and the NDP, our desire is to use our economic advantages and our assets, and use that prosperity to transition our economy. They respect that approach. It's the approach their kids want them to take, and they understand that we can't be using oil forever. The Conservatives don't care about the environment. The NDP and the Greens want to kill our exploratory drilling and our developments. It's only the Liberal Party that has a plan that balances the environment and the economy, and that's why we're going to win this election. Federal Conservatives in Newfoundland are still having to deal with what was known as the ABC movement. A decade ago, Conservative Premier Danny Williams, in protest over the Harper government's handling of federal transfers to Newfoundland, launched the Anything But Conservative movement. That movement hurt the federal Conservatives here in the island in the years that followed, but is it still a factor in this election? Uh, no, I don't think so, and I firmly believe it's not. Uh, I have had it at the doors uh, several times, but the working relationship I have with Mr. Chess Crosby, the leader of the Progressive Conservatives here in the province, is quite good. He's been very supportive. Uh, his, whole, uh, his whole caucus here, the 15 of them, the MHAs, have been quite good to me on my campaign. Uh, door knocking, uh, you know, dropping by the headquarters, uh, positive, uh, positive reinforcement. No, it's 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 been quite well. So I've I've had the conversation with Mr. Crosby with respect to that federal provincial 
relationship that needs to be there. It's, it's, it's a must for our province of Newfoundland and Labrador. Okay, what about people who still remember, for example, uh, Stephen Harper when he mm -hmm. talked about the region, when he yes. talked about a culture of dependency, there were negative comments and they've cost conservatives in the region, both in Nova Scotia, here in Newfoundland. Uh, are those behind you or do people still remember some of those comments? Uh, I firmly believe some may, may remember. I don't think it's quite the issue as it was uh, four years ago. I, I actually know it's not the issue as it was four years ago. Uh, people, there are diff it's a different time. People do remember, however, there's more important things to discuss and to, uh, and to work through here in St. John's East. And, uh, and people have those uh, important issues and they want me to bring them forward. So I, I don't think it's going to be quite as important as it was four years ago. At the St. John's Farmer's Market, locals are having a wonderful time pouring over the fresh produce and choosing their favorite homemade foods. But when they try to choose who to vote for, what are their biggest issues? I guess access to health care, both physical and mental. Um, for example, my father, he's been in the emergency department uh, since, so it's Saturday, since Thursday evening waiting for a bed. Um, and they're at double capacity at the local hospital. And as well, um, access to family and physicians here in Newfoundland has been quite difficult. Um, a lot of the physicians are retiring and aging out, and a lot of the young doctors aren't staying here. So I guess my whole family, our family physician is retiring in December, and there's, as of right now, there's no access for us. What's important to you in yeah. this election? Getting the economy back on track. Right, uh, right here, right now, is rough. Yeah. Yeah. How bad are things right now? It's pretty desperate. I always think the most important uh, issue is the economy, always. Um, I'm concerned about the um, increased number of deficits. Myself and my son actually went to the climate strike that happened a couple of weeks ago, so obviously that's important to us because I want there to be a future for my son. And it's unbelievable that now we're actually thinking there may not be a future for a lot of kids. So hopefully parents start getting on board and realizing what needs to happen now and the dramatic changes that need to happen. Morning, I'm Nick Whalen. I'm running to be the member of Parliament. And Liberals in both St. John's East and St. John's South Mount Pearl are also hoping voters here will remember another big announcement from Ottawa. In April, just before the provincial election here, Liberal Minister Seamus O'Regan and Liberal Premier Dwight Ball announced new money from Ottawa from the dividends the federal government gets from the lucrative Hibernia offshore project. The Liberals say it will amount to $2.5 billion or more money for the province over 30 years. But the other parties are saying it's not all that it's stacked up to be. Well, I, I think that that so-called New Atlantic Accord is, is very flawed. I mean, we have uh, that 8.5% Hibernia share that was put there in the late 80s because there was a need to uh, prop up the, the, the uh, Hibernia uh, the Hibernia project when when you know, it was in jeopardy. Well, it was in jeopardy, so that was the piece. In, yeah. But that was never intended to make money for the uh, for, for the government of Canada. That was intended to help the project go forward. Newfoundland, Newfoundland, and Labrador gave up a lot for that as well, with in terms of of uh, tax holidays on uh, H, uh, on the sales tax for the life of the project. So our position had always been that that money, that, that share should be given to Newfoundland and Labrador because the, the government of Canada had already got its money back. It's a 38-year contract. I don't know if you've looked at it. We get a small dividend uh, for the next 38 years so it's somewhere in the neighborhood. of they're, they're playing with the numbers fast and loose. They but say $2.5 Yeah, but it's not because we have to start paying it back in about 15 years' time. So, you know, do the number crunch on it and you will see that uh, uh, there's really no direct benefit 
to us at the end of the day because inflation is going to wipe that out. Utter malarkey. And they know it. It's $2 billion for the next 10 years. It's a lot of money. And it's new money. It's not a cash advance like, like other agreements have had. This is new money. And it is basically what we estimate the dividend to be on the Hibernia shares that the federal government has. And we offered to give those shares at a nominal price to the province. But frankly, this place is so rattled by um, the unpredictability of energy prices and, and the energy markets that they wanted a steady return. So what we said is, look, okay, we'll hang on to the shares then, and we'll give you what we think the return will be at a steady rate of income for you. And uh, it's a good deal, and they know it. So you know what? That's malarkey. There is another brighter economic development story here in St. John's, one that's often overlooked, the high-tech sector. The very successful video gaming company, Other Ocean, is one of a number of growing tech companies in the Newfoundland capital. And people in the province's high-tech sector say they are the way of the future. I think in Newfoundland we, we punch above our weight in the tech sector. Uh, right now the industry is worth about $1.6 billion, which is bigger than the uh, tourism industry. It's bigger than the fishery, so two of our you know, more, more traditional, uh, most traditional industries. Uh, it employs about 4,000 people or so, and that's growing rapidly. We actually think that that's going to double to, to uh, eight to 10,000 people in the next five, six years. In terms of pure tech, there's about 170 or so companies here, and that's, that number's growing rapidly. And those are companies that are doing software, innovative hardware from you know, thermostats, and there are also you know, some interesting things around uh, genetics, genomics, like sequence bio. We're here at uh, Other Ocean today, who's doing some great things in, globally in terms of gaming. So yeah, there's all kinds of cool stuff happening mm -hmm. here. So I guess the big question is, we're in the midst of a federal election campaign. What's your, uh, what's your, your message to, and maybe as they say, your ask of the federal politicians? To realize that the that this is this is this is obvious, but the tech sector is the future. There's no, there are not going to be any jobs that are non-technical in ten years, if there's any now. There's very few. Um, so the world and world's becoming more and more high tech all the time. Uh, we need to Canada needs to be global competitively. So uh, it's it just as you know here in Newfoundland and in this particular riding, um, we need to be competitive. But Canada generally needs to be competitive. So if we're going to, if we are going to be competitive, we need to understand that we need that we need talent. We need to be making sure that young people know where the opportunities are. Anybody that's in an industry that's in decline, they need to know that they can be retrained. Like my company, we need people with the aptitude, not, and, and we can, we, oftentimes we can, we can train them up or we can get them trained up. In this election yep. and in this riding, what's important for you? Climate change is the most pressing issue for me without a doubt because it's the most holistic issue that's on the ballot box right now. Do you think the parties are taking it seriously? Uh, that depends. I uh, become quite skeptical of most federal of most federal politicians, to be perfectly honest. But I uh, I have to remain optimistic that the system will be effective. Uh, and right now, the only the only party leaders I think are truly concerned with the issue are Jagmeet Singh and Elizabeth May. Um, I could be wrong about that. Certainly, climate change is really important for me right now at the rate that it's going. So that's a big one. And fairness to Indigenous people you know, settle the claims in that, and uh, let's get this whole oil situation straightened out. I mean, I think it's really important to the foundation of the country, and so those are some of the three big issues. For me, what's important is just education, environment, and healthcare. The basics for, for a living, that's it. That's all we need. What's the biggest worry in St. John's, do you think, uh, in terms of what needs to be addressed? Me personally, because I lived away for so long, is environmental issues here. People just don't quite understand it. 
and it needs to be addressed more. And then we need to restructure. The Green candidate in St. John's East is David Peters. We've got the best platform. We've got the best platform on the biggest issue. Climate change, the climate emergency is going to affect every Canadian. Uh, and it's a matter now of mitigating the damage, of making radical changes. The Liberals and the Conservatives over the last 30 years have done nothing, very little, and we need to make some serious changes to get it right. Concern over climate change and the environment also spills over to debate over the future of the province's lucrative offshore oil and gas drilling industry. I'm pretty concerned about the oil uh, development in our offshore. It feels like we're putting our, our oceans, our, our future at risk for the sake of a few dollars for today. Um, I see the way that um, oil is threatening our, our fishery, the, the food that we eat. Um, and it feels like our, our ocean ecosystem could collapse um, in 10, 20 years. I mean, that's what the science is saying. Uh, and yet our government seems bent on, on doubling oil production and, and putting our future at risk um, because they're, they're so scared and, and it feels like they don't have a, a real plan for our economy. You know, people need jobs. It's, it's been a real problem here. We've, we've had one huge ecological disaster with the cod moratorium and ever since then it seems like, you know, we don't really know where to go. So there's, there's a lot there that um, I could agree with. One of the biggest things that you said that I really agree with is the fact there's no plan. And, and because there's no plan, there's sort of a patchwork um, quilt of, we'll try this and maybe that'll appease this group and maybe that'll appease that group. If we shut down production in Canada, there's only 10% of the countries that produce oil are even close to having any type of environmental standards. So 90% of the countries do not have environmental standards. So if we Canadians shut down, our production, including the offshore that's here, all we're doing is we're shifting that production to, Ni to Nigeria, we're shifting it to Russia, we're making another, another Russian billionaire more rich, we're not taxing the potential here, and we're not, we're, we don't have a plan. So my concern is that we're tr we have great intentions. We want to shut it all down and say, there, there you go. So 5% of the world's production, which is Canada, shuts down, the price goes up temporarily by 5%, and then it goes right back down again. So that's where my, I'm, that's my concern. I mean, I guess with that argument, it's like, it's not up for us to decide like what other countries are going to do. I think we really need to like clean up our own house. In the riding of St. John's East then, in that tight race, what's the Liberal incumbent saying about why people should re-elect him? I think I've demonstrated to people over the past four years that I approach problems with great rigor, that I take an analytical approach, and that I work really hard on their behalf and they can see the proof is in the pudding around my riding where things are going really well. And for the NDP challenger, the two-time MP who wants to make a comeback, what will it take to put him back in office? What it'll take for people to vote NDP is to walk into the ballot paper and say, do I want to send Jack Harris back to Ottawa again, or do I want to send Nick Whalen to Ottawa? That's what it'll take to get me back to Ottawa. People market that X for me because I've been there, I've done the job, I know how to do the job, and I can represent the riding in Newfoundland and Labrador well in Parliament. In the writings of St. John East and St. John's South Mount Pearl, for CPAC, I'm Martin Stringer.